0: This is an ABC podcast. Warning, there are concepts in this show which may not be suitable for children.
1: I believed that you have to risk for love, that sometimes love can feel foolish and dangerous. No-one had looked after me like he had and, you know, said that they loved me before.
2: This was a big moment in Nikki Britton's life.
1: He said that I could live with him and stay with him and maybe we can try and make it work in Perth. Like, he was certain he wanted this. All I need to do was just have some faith that
2: he was worth it and that and it would all be OK. After a whirlwind romance, months going long distance, her boyfriend asks her to pack all of her belongings, make a cross-country move from Sydney and start a new life with him in Perth. What did your friends and family say? don't go, don't go, don't go, don't go. (laughs) (laughs) So, of course, she goes. There were
1: red flags, I mean, honestly, alarm bells going off all over the place in retrospect. But at the time, this guy was charming and funny and had these huge arms that could embrace me in this big beautiful hug and I was just living like a, queen, and I thought, yeah, you know what's missing here is a king, so let's audition you for the role, champ.
2: Yeah, nah I'm Elizabeth Koolass. Welcome to Days Like These. Most of us want to believe in the idea of risking it all for love, that it'll pay off if only we'd make the leap. A this, for Nikki Britton? This was supposed to be that moment, the peak of her love life. But what actually happened would turn out to be so much weirder. It was an encounter that would change her and provide a lifetime of stand-up material.
0: You know it from How To Stay Married. Please give a big opera house welcome. Go crazy, put your hands together and welcome to the stage, Nikki Britton! <laughs>
2: Mickey Britton is an actress, a comedian and a self-described hopeless romantic.
1: And I've got all that Disney bullshit, that princess storyline weighed so deep in my head, you know? Like, I know that I do not need a man to complete me, but if one wanted to gallop in and save me from my own bullshit, I'd be so happy.
2: <laughs> I really would. I really would. Oh. Her stand-up is a mix of hilarity and radical vulnerability, usually about the pitfalls of trying to find love.
1: And I know what you're thinking. Hang on, Nikki. You say you're a hopeless romantic. Didn't you let a man you barely knew jizz up your sleeve in a rented SUV the other night?
2: (laughs) Yes, I did. Well done. But before all of that, in 2008, Nikki was a recent theatre school graduate living in Sydney.
1: I was living on my own. I'd recently moved out of home. My parents... I think that they were kind of mid-divorce. Two of my grandparents had just recently passed away. I was coming off the back of quite a few years of upheaval and I was single, young, thinking that my presence in a Shakespearean play was going to uplift crowds Australia-wide, um, which they truly could have uh, but, you know. <laughs> anyway, um, The family that I'd come from was sort of falling apart, so all of the possibilities that were available to me in this kind of fresh, burgeoning identity that I was taking
2: on were kind of limitless. Against all the usual odds, Nikki does actually land a gig after graduating. It's an understudy job for a theatre show. It's going to have a multi-city tour and she'll be shadowing some of the best-known grand dames in Australian theatre, Tracy Bartram, Jean Kitson... And she and one of her fellow understudies, who's also in her early 20s, they're thrilled to be there. As rehearsals start in Sydney, each night they promptly report to the stage door and wait in the green room, just in case they're needed. But it doesn't last. And then it became sort of like,
1: oh, well, we'll be close enough that if they called us, we're only half an hour away. And then that became, oh, these women are, they are match fit. They are not not going on. And so by the time we were taking it on tour away from Sydney, um, yeah, we would it was it was party time. So the tour goes to Perth, we are at the Burswood Theatre, and my friend and I realize this is gonna go very similarly to Sydney. And we didn't have to be at work in Inverted Commons until, you know, 6 30 the following night. So why would we not go to Connections Nightclub every single chance we got, which is a very popular gay club in uh, Northbridge?
2: It would be wrong not to. It would be wrong not to. We'd be
1: wrong. Like, it would be rude if we were given such an opportunity and didn't take it. Do it! So we were at the gay bar and my friend and I said, whoop, there's a podium with no one on it. And then there was guy who was also trying to get on the podium he he was wearing a t-shirt that said born to fish forced to work (laughs) and like this is Saturday night in a gay bar like have a little bit of fashion sense about you and so we kind of had a playful joust at who was going to get on this podium my friend ended up getting on the podium and I was chatting to this guy He's got very short blonde hair. He's quite, I reckon he's about 5'10". He's very thick built. He clearly works with his hands. He's got a very prominent tongue ring, a ball. And then he was quite quick to say, I'm not gay. I'm here with my gay friend, but I'm not gay. And I said, okay, yeah, live your truth. No problem. And then, you know, it's a little bit blurry, but there was definitely, like, vodka, pineapple, a lot of that. And, of course, because you're 23, you meet a straight guy at a gay bar and you go, well, this is a good idea. Why don't you come back to my apartment?
2: They spend the next morning together. It's a Sunday, so there's a matinee show. And as Nikki prepares to head to the theatre for the afternoon, she tells him, take your time, let yourself out whenever you're ready. That night, she returns to the room. And then I got back there and he was still there. Wow, are you freaked out? No,
1: I was thrilled. It was like a symbol of stability. It was someone who had chosen to stay. And, yeah, I just thought, he hung around. Wow this must be love. Um, I'm embarrassed to say that. And then I'm pretty sure the following night played out very similar to the previous night. There was drinking, there was dancing. Um, My friend, I think, pulled me aside a couple of times and said, absolutely not, Nikki, not this guy. And I blatantly ignored her. Well, that's pretty much how it went for the next two weeks that I was in Perth.
2: And just like that, the two of them tumble effortlessly into this intimate routine. Nikki meets her obligations at the theatre. Sometimes he goes to work. But mostly, life in those few weeks is whatever is happening within the bubble of Nikki's service department. I know this was a while ago.
1: Do you remember what the hotel looked like? Weirdly, I remember the room better than I remember him. Really? And that says a lot about how much I like a good sheet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it was a king-size bed, there were red curtains, there was a grey couch, a flat-screen TV and there was a big triple-door built-in wardrobe that was all mirrored doors. Like, there was a gym and a pool! I mean, I'd say it in essentially caravans
2: up until this point at best. Nikki is high on this new life she's experiencing. This is adulthood living it up in hotels that someone else is paying for, the insulated ice bucket, fresh soaps that appear wrapped in their light tissue paper. And he's there, whenever she wants him to be, using the spare key card that she gives him to come and go. They build this temporary, completely absorbing world. And in their downtime, he tells her about his life, that he's a casual labourer, that he's from New Zealand. And Nikki's happy. It feels right. He
1: was very, very physically affectionate. He didn't seem aggressive but maybe protective. He definitely seemed to have a shy side and gave me very much the impression that he was striving for better and that he was misunderstood by his family. And How did you feel at that point? I probably felt excited. You know that feeling that, maybe romantic movies from the 80s gave us where kind of the bad boy was someone to be desired because if the bad boy was looking after you, he could like take care of you and take on anyone who was going to cross you. He was a real teddy bear with me but that if shit went down, he could take care of it for the both of us.
2: This goes on for two weeks. Nikki never does get the chance to go from understudy to star. And then the show wraps and it's time to fly back home to Sydney. We had a tearful farewell and I remember him standing
1: in the street and blowing kisses and waving as the taxi pulled away. He was like, there's something I want to tell you but I I can't... And I was like, OK, that's it's fine. It's fine. And he did try to say, I love you. And I knew that that's what he was trying to work up to, but he didn't actually say it. And then I'm fairly sure it was either the phone call at the airport when I was still at the airport or or a phone call like, you know, a day or two when I was back in Sydney that he said, I love you. And then that just became, you know, signing off with I love you after that.
2: It just unfolds, the next logical step in building a relationship, and a rhythm sets in that they both agree to live by. There's contact every day. He will call, he will text, he will check in. We'd shared
1: everything about each other, we'd been there for each other, and he's all in,
2: from what I can tell. And one day, a few months in, they're on the phone, like they always were, and that's when he makes his pitch. He says he wants
1: me to be the mother of his children. He loves me so much. I'm such an incredible person. He's playing pretty hard right into the rom-com pocket at this point. Like, (laughs) he was playing all the tropes. And, you know, that's the grand gesture. That's the we've been separated by war or circumstance and now we're reunited and run into the arms of each other and
2: that's the proof of love, you know? And that's how she ends up on the plane to Perth, carrying one suitcase, dressed in black block dance pants, and buzzing with excitement. I hope that it was
1: as good as I remembered. Very content that I was flying towards my destiny. I call him as soon as I get off the plane. And then I remember coming down the escalator towards the baggage carousel and seeing him and I was on the phone to him and I said, I'm waving, I'm waving, and he didn't recognise me at first. But I was a long way away and it had been a few months. And then I saw him and he kind of, like, recognised me and we ran into each other's arms and he gave me a huge hug and, you know, it was like meeting each other again for the first time he'd brought me a bunch of flowers I forgot he'd brought me a bunch of flowers and I think I was holding his hand with my left hand and my right hand was just gripping his forearm
2: you know to just bring me into this moment they walk through the glass doors and over to the taxi rank with the Perth sun streaming down around them ready to start this new life together You know, he'd taken the afternoon off work. I knew he was struggling
1: for money. So I said, oh, well, I'll I'll get the taxi. And so I, I looked in my wallet to see if I had enough cash or whether I should go back into the airport and get some cash out. It was a blue leather wallet. And he brought his hand down onto my wallet and my hand and he grabbed a hold of my wallet and ran away. I still remember the slap of his rubber thongs on the asphalt as he ran away from me. He was bolting as fast as a stocky man in thongs could. I thought this was a joke. I thought this was a hilarious joke. And as he ran into the distance out of view, I thought, he's really committing to this joke. I watched him until I couldn't see him anymore. And then I waited and... There was a a silver bench seat, like one of those cold silver seats outside the airport. And I remember thinking, oh, my legs are tired now. And so I sat on the bench seat for for what was definitely half an hour, just thinking, he'll come back. No, he'll, he'll come back. And then, I, and I called him, and he didn't answer. And I texted him, and he didn't answer. And I called one of his friends' phones, and they didn't answer. And slowly, incrementally, it dawned on me and dropped in that he's not coming back. It's total shock and white noise and disbelief, like a heartbreak and confusion
2: This couldn't be real. He couldn't be serious. Because if he was, this was the longest play that Nikki had ever heard of. A whirlwind romance of such intensity. Months of marathon phone calls, sharing the minutia of their lives, a cross-country move instigated by him. It just didn't add up. Literally I mean, do
1: your research on an actor and their income, mate. Like, I truly do not have anything to give you. I, had, I think I had
2: $18 and a few cents in my wallet. And after everything between them, that's what it had come down to. $18, some loose change and a few credit cards with measly limits that Nikki would cancel soon enough.
1: And then um, I had to... Walk back into the airport with my tail between my legs and call my mum and say, Is there any chance you could book me back on essentially the same plane, but for its flight back to Sydney? I was terrified to call her because I was so embarrassed. And and, you know, that exactly what they had said might happen happened. And I I hated that. I was so embarrassed. And um but, you know, she she didn't say, I told you so. She said, yeah, OK, but you've got to pay me back. I remember I think she said, you've got to pay me back.
2: Back in Sydney, Nikki tries to contact him, tries to understand what happened. She never does get a reply, but she reached out to some of his friends. None of them were seeing him anymore that had a falling out, they told her. But she did piece together some scraps of the truth. He'd given her a variation on his real name. He'd done some prison time in New Zealand. The list went on. I don't think he was on drugs when we met or when he was in Perth,
1: but I do feel like he probably was using me to fill a void that drugs had left. He was living at the hostel that he said that he was working at. He was living there. And it was all sort of half-truths the whole way along, really. In my head, I justified it as not being what he'd expected. For some reason, I'd changed. For some reason, I'd become less attractive or less of a possible candidate for love or marriage or being chosen, and it was
2: awful for the self-esteem on so many levels. In the years that follow, there are other relationships. There's some therapy. And then, there's comedy.
1: I am, I will admit, a compliment bulimic. Um, LAUGHTER I am. I'll binge on them. I'll take them. I'll gobble up everything you got. <laughs> I'll let that settle and then I'll tell you exactly why I don't deserve it. That's how that goes. You know what I'm talking about. That's such a nice dress, babe. Oh, thanks. I got it from um, Kmart, actually. Reduced. It was $3. I'm a piece of shit. I'm a... <laughs> Compliment bulimic. I feel like a lot of my comedy comes from retelling stories that have happened to me that could be full of shame and embarrassment but by sharing them with a crowd of people who see themselves in that, my hope is that other people's shame is alleviated or at least eased by knowing we're all in this together and um, (laughs) shitty things can happen. Because I've, I've tried to be the good girl and no good comes of it. Not for me and not for the world. And now that I've rejected your expectations and I'm not racing out to have my own kids and I'm not hating my body and spending my energy doing that, there's a chance now that I might actually reach my potential <laughs> or at least figure out what that looks like through my own perspective. It's almost like telling the story in a comedic way, it builds a callus. And It's rough. And the callus doesn't hurt and, like, we've all got calluses here and there but it is covering layer by layer the issue that might be further down. Yes, I think at the bottom of all of our painful, tragic stories is a kernel of deep pain but I think there's power in being irreverent about that pain collecting all of the information you have and all of the feelings that you and the audience might have about something and still finding the lightness in it, I feel like that's irreverence and I feel like there's great, great power in that. Look, I'm happy for my rating to be reduced if I spew in an Uber or I finger a dead possum. That's... (laughs) But I'm not interested in reducing myself so I fit into your idea of what's good.
2: Nikki has worked through the pain of everything that happened at Perth Airport that day. And for now, she's still single.
1: Thanks, guys. It comes a point in my life, which is where I am right now, where I just feel like I'm so happy and I'm so content and satisfied with my life. I would just genuinely love to share that with someone. I'd love to you know, bear witness to someone else's life and them mine and start to dream with someone else and create a life and imagine what else is possible. And that sweet, beautiful girl who was left at the airport, she knows heaps more now. She learnt a really brutal lesson. <laughs> like she had her sweet little heartbroken, but yeah, like, you, you know better. You know better and, and it's not going to be that bad again. I thought that light would come from the perfect... Not the perfect man, but, like, a really good candidate walking in and showing me that they were great, when, in fact, I think the light that's coming through, it's me. It's my emotional uh, intelligence and just the trust that I can now have in that.
2: Whoa! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's been a real journey, man. (laughs) To hear the full episode of Nikki's stand-up show, Once Bitten, check out the ABC Comedy Presents podcast. If you'd like to ask Nikki out on a date, you can send all requests to days like these at abc.net.au. We'll be vetting them. We've also got a digital extra for you with this story. Nikki had some time on the couch with a forensic psychologist who specialises in criminal psychopathy. You can find that conversation on our website. like these is hosted by me elizabeth kulas our lead reporter is pat abud and our season one reporting team includes alex lolbach sam wicks and monique bowley our wonderful researcher is tamar cranswick who also produced this episode our digital team includes andrew davies and michael delaney sound design on this episode by simon branthwaite with thanks to timothy and Stephen Tilley. the supervising producer for this episode was claudia taranto Our brilliant executive producers are Ian Walker and Rachel Fountain. Days Like These was commissioned by Kelly Reardon for ABC Audio Studios. And our theme song is Yeah Nah by the Gooch Palms, courtesy of Ratbag Records and BMG. Extra music by Russell Stapleton. See you next time. If, like Nikki Britton, you're feeling a little overwhelmed in general at the moment, we've got a podcast for that. Judith Lucy, Overwhelmed and Dying. It's an eight-part comedy series devoted to making you feel better about a world where bad news seems to come at us from every direction. Just before
0: turning 50, I realised that I was totally overwhelmed by the state of the world and my own life. But I also felt like time was running out. So the question is, how to make the most of the years that I have left on this planet?
2: Judith Lucy, overwhelmed and dying. You can find it on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.